0: Okay, we are in, uh, in 1 Samuel, and we are in 1 Samuel chapter 19, and what we're going to do, we're going to cover a lot of ground today because I'm going to summarize certain things, and we're going to get uh, right right on into uh, 1 Samuel 21, but let's finish up with 1 Samuel chapter 19, you may recall that David had fled from the house where Michal, his wife, had put the household idol in the bed, and and they had had run or he had run and, and Michal ended up lying to her father about David. And you see all that conflict there. And then what Saul does is he sends some troops out to get David and the troops and David had run to to be in the same place where Samuel, the prophet was, who was an old man by this time. And the troops come under the power of God and fall on the ground and start prophesying. So he sends more troops, and the same thing happens to them. He sends more troops, and the same thing happens to them. So Saul himself goes, and that's in verse 22 of 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah, and he came as far as the large well that is in Seku. And he asked, and he said, where are Samuel and David? And some said, behold, they are in Neoth, in Ramah. And he proceeded there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth in Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay down naked all day, all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? And in chapter 20, then David fled from Naoth in Ramah, and he came and he said to Jonathan, What have I done, and what is my iniquity, that this is my, and what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? And he said to him, far be, it from, far be it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David bowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. Okay. So, Saul himself goes, and you see this judgment. This, this is not, this is not uh, a wonderful thing that has happened to Saul. What God is doing is God is giving David a chance to escape. And he hits these troops, and then he hits Saul, and he causes them to fall on the ground, and start prophesying. And so they lose total control of their own bodies. And they're unable to get up. And they're, they're, they're there prophesying. Now you would think that this would get Saul's attention or something. But it really doesn't. And this is, this is very much a judgment upon Saul. That has happened to him in this. And uh, uh, trying to get his attention. Nonetheless, it doesn't change Saul's intent in trying to kill David. Now you may remember that back... Back earlier in chapter 19, Saul had vowed that he wouldn't hurt David. You know, he came to his senses. And back in, in chapter 19, it says in verse 6, So Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So Jonathan now is functioning under this, this, uh, this sense that his father's not going to put David to death. That's why David then runs. So this gives, David, time to flee. And so you see this intercession of God. God intercedes in the lives of people. God does intercede. He interceded in the life of David so that every troop that came to get him just fell on the ground and could only start prophesying. Even Saul himself, the same thing happened to him. Gives him a chance to to flee. because uh, uh, And then he he flees from Naoth and Ramah and he goes to Jonathan. And Jonathan is in... in, uh, in Gibeah of Saul, uh, uh, of Saul in Gibeah. But Saul's not there. Remember, Saul's up in uh, Naoth. So David flees and he goes to see Jonathan. And look, now you see something of David. Here's this amazing man, but you see a life being poured out. David comes to his friend and he says, <clears throat> What have I done? In verse chapter 20, verse 1. What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he's seeking my life? David's like, What have I done? Have you ever gotten so beside yourself that you just it just starts dumping out with a friend. You get with a friend and just starts this is actually what's happened. Here you see the real human side of David. This man who does these tremendous exploits. You see this amazing side, this amazing side. And then what happens is Jonathan says, I don't know anything about this. As far as I know, my father's not trying to kill you because he still believes what his father had told him back in chapter 19 verse 6 that as the Lord lives, I'm not going to hurt David. And David said, no, he's going to hurt me. And Jonathan makes a plan to check it out. And that's what happens in chapter 20. Jonathan has a plan to really check this thing out. And so when Jonathan checks this out and his father detects that Jonathan is just checking this out to protect David. Let's skip on over to 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now, send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said, Why should we put him to death? He ha- <clears throat> What has he done? And Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down, so Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. <clears throat> so you see that that um, that King Saul even threw a spear at his own son to try to kill him. And this is actually not even the first time he tried to kill Jonathan. There was one time in a battle, if you may recall, that Jonathan had broken a vow that his father had made. Jonathan knew nothing about the vow, he had eaten food during a battle, which was totally permitted to eat by the word of God. And Saul had made a vow, and on that basis, he was going to kill his son Jonathan, have his son Jonathan kill. But the people protected him, said, you're not going to kill Jonathan. Here he throws his own spirit, Jonathan. So what we see here, this is a lesson on how to destroy your family. If you ever wanted to know how to destroy your family, here is the lesson on how to do it. And, you know, it it may sound odd, you know, know, who would want to destroy their family? I have seen this many times. I have seen men dismantle their families just as you would dismantle a house brick by brick. Not waking up in the morning and saying, I think I will destroy my family today. It generally doesn't happen that way. But it's through actions that the family begins to get destroyed. In Saul's case, deceit, I'm sorry, conceit started to come into his life. He started really feeling something of himself. Remember, he was tall, he was very handsome, but he didn't have an inflated image of himself early on. But that image started to rise and he started to set himself above others. Now, you may say, well, that, that could never happen to me. Let me tell you something. One of the easiest things to encroach into our lives is conceit and pride. That is one of the easiest things. So n- let me give you an example. Um, when you're a sophomore and no longer a freshman, a lot of times you can feel like you're a little bit better than the new freshman coming in. Have you ever had that feeling just for a nanosecond? Has that ever slipped in just for a moment? That's just a little bit of what begins to happen in life. And then, you know, you're a senior. You start thinking you're really something. And then you go, you know, from hero to zero when you go to graduate school. So you start all over again. But then what happens is you you get a job. And you start moving up in this job. And you start feeling like you should get certain things in this position. And people should treat you a certain way. And... When some secretary says something to you that's not very respectful, all of a sudden, you will see within yourself a feeling like, I don't deserve this kind of treatment. I'm going to deal with this individual. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I know this firsthand. I know this feeling firsthand, and I want you to be able to detect this in yourself. Imagine if you're a king, how you would feel. We see what happens to a 19-year-old basketball player when they start making a lot of money and they can throw a ball in a net very well. We see, you know, the attitude that happens. I'm in fact surprised with all their glory and with all their fame and with all their money that they don't become more conceited than they already are. Because conceit slips in very easily. This was the first step. And as a result of that, he started to disobey God's Word. Actually, early on... He he really observed God's Word. He had proper sacrifices uh, uh, that led into battle and, and proper instruction. But he started to move away from God's Word. This is why it's so important as believers to take the Word of God and make it your meditation. I know that we get this image like we're strong, we're going to stand. We're not. We're weak, we're going to fall. Get that image of yourself. That is the more appropriate image. That is the image that we should have of ourselves, that we are weak and we will not stand. You get the fear of God in your life by reading this book, because he started to disobey the word of God. And then what happens if you take this book and you say, this book is life to me. I will make it my meditation. What happens is you start to get the fear of God in your life because you read passages and immediately it jumps out at you that God speaks to you. Without this book, it cannot be done. With this book on your shelf, it cannot be done. It must be read and it must be meditated on. The, you see, the third thing that he does here is he starts to call his wife and his children derogatory names. I've seen this happen in families. You will tear apart a family brick by brick. You start to do that. His anger burned against him. He says, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Uh, isn't this his son too? You know, so, so with one sentence, he, he, he tears down his son... And he tears down his wife, too, and the mother of his son. So you see that the words start to come in, and it starts to tear apart a family. It starts with conceit. It starts with neglect of the Word of God. And then words start coming in that tear apart a family. And then he starts raging against his own family. And uh, um, he puts this vengeful agenda before the good of his own family. To put other things before the good of your family. Let me tell you something that is the best thing that I ever did with my family. Would you like to know what is the best thing that I've ever done with my family that has helped strengthen my family more than any other thing? Would you like to know or should we just go on? (laughs) The best thing that I have ever done with my family is I followed the advice of my father-in-law. I had a... A daughter who was about three, another daughter who was about one, one and a half. And uh, he said to me, you know, I, I can, he was visiting us once and he said, you know, I can see that you're a very busy guy. And you're a good father. You, you, you uh, talk to your children and you put them to bed and you pray with them before they go to bed. But unless you get a dedicated time with them in the morning of teaching them the scriptures, you're going to lose them. I don't know what came over me, but I followed his advice and I started waking them up early in the morning and now I have four children and there's only one left that that uh, that is not in college now. And still I get him woken up at five thirty in the morning and the and and yeah, he gets up five thirty. Oh, isn't that terrible? And so so very abusive father. And so, so I get him up at 5.30 in the morning, and Shireen joins us, and, and actually, what I do, and I've been doing this even before my father-in-law spoke to me, is I always bring Shireen her cup of tea at 5 a.m., she wants it at her bedside, and I make sure her Bible is there, and her cup of hot tea, and she is set, she's ready to go. And then 5.30, she comes down and joins Shireen, and, and, and now it's just, just Ben left, but From the time they were little kids, from the time they were newborns, even Shireen would say, just newborn, let them sleep. I said, nope, we're having family prayer time. And I would pick pick them up out of their crib and and I'd take them to family prayer time at 5.30 in the morning. And and I always did this. And so I would do this with my children. This was the best pattern I had ever set up because I leave my house at 6 in the morning. So that 30 minutes in the morning, we would memorize scripture together. So we'd each have scriptures we're working on. We'd all be working on the same scriptures when they were little, very young. You know, all they had to say, if they could begin to talk, I would say, the Lord is my. And all they had to say was shepherd. And I would say, the Lord is my. They'd say shepherd. And that's where they started. And little by little, they're memorizing large portions of the word of God. And I would. Set this in their lives. Plus, I'd have this time with them. Then we'd read the scriptures together and then we'd all get on our knees and we'd pray for each other. We'd all pray for each other. And then I'd bless them in the name of the Lord and I'm out of the house by six. That 30 minutes in the morning has meant more to us as a family than anything else. And I've asked my children and they'll say the same thing. That 30 minutes. Because it set the pattern for the family. You can destroy your family brick by brick Or you can take up practices that bless and and enhance. And I'll give you another thing about that. Many people say, well, we'll just do that at night. My experience, as kids start getting older, you cannot have an evening family time. You cannot. The practical things of life don't let you have that. You have football games and baseball games and soccer games and ballet. And you have church functions going on and this meeting and that meeting. But what's amazing is at 5.30 in the morning, nobody calls. There's no call. There's there's nothing else going on. And you can do this sort of thing. It takes diligence, but you can build up your family brick by brick, or you can tear it down brick by brick. The choice is yours. You can really do this. It is good to establish a pattern and to maintain this pattern. It is a good thing to do. And we did this Monday through Friday every week. Saturday, they were allowed to sleep in. And on Sunday, because on Sunday mornings, we would always all get up early to get going for church anyway. So, in our home, Sunday is not really a day to relax. Sunday is a day of of worship and service. That's what we do. So, they would get, you know, Saturdays, they were allowed to sleep in. But that was the way that we did it. And I am so happy that I've done it that way. I have absolutely no regrets. Yes, I had complaining children in the morning sometimes. But... You know, the complaining didn't last long. I'd go to wake them up and they said, why are you waking me up? Oh, I don't know. I've just been doing this for the last ten years. I have no idea why I'm waking you up. Can we figure this out? (laughs) And they get down there. There are practices that you can establish that set your family right with God. He tore it down brick by brick. You can establish it. David starts pouring out his heart and David feels forsaken. You know, Jesus was, it says in Matthew 26, it says, all of his disciples fled from him. So in the garden when they came to arrest him, all of his disciples fled from him. There was one that returned to the foot of the cross, and that only one was John. John returned to the foot of the cross. And John was the one that didn't have to undergo uh, a a persecution to death. You know, all the other ones died a death of, uh, died a martyr's death. He didn't have to. He had already shown up at the cross. His dedication, return to Jesus, was already there. But Jesus was forsaken when He was on the cross. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because He was forsaken, you never will be. You will never be forsaken. So we're going to see this. So David pours out his heart to Jonathan. And then, and then he runs. So he pours out his heart. And, and uh, uh, then David ends up In another place, in 21, remember last week we read in chapter 21 how David had taken up the consecrated bread? And now David goes from there, and he he does something really amazing. So David runs again, after his friend Jonathan warns him that, yeah, you're right, my father is trying to kill you. David runs. And so you see in verse 8 of chapter 21. Then David said to Ahimelech, now is there not a spear? This is 1 Samuel 21, verse 8. Now is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped up in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it. For there is no other except it here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. So David, after he takes the consecrated bread... And he took, he asked for five loaves of bread. We know that there were some other men in hiding with David at that time because Jesus tells us that in Mark chapter 2 that he took bread for himself and for the men that were with him. It wasn't many men because David just asked for five loaves of bread. So it couldn't have been, you know, 200 men. It could maybe just five men total or just three or something. But then he says, I need a, I need a weapon. And so he he asks, is there a weapon? And he says, oh, there happens to be the weapon here of, of Goliath, that huge sword that you took from him in the Valley of Elah when you killed him. And so he said, okay, I'll take that. You know, there's none like it. So here he's got now the sword of Goliath. Now, you want to see the infinite wisdom of David? He takes the sword of Goliath and let's see where he goes in verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Ashish, king of Gath. Now, where was Goliath from? Gath. He goes to Goliath's home city wearing Goliath's sword that is very big, very unusual, that everybody's going to recognize. And this is the guy who killed Goliath. And he goes to Gath, that very city, wearing this sword. What are you doing? You know, this is the last city on earth that you should go to. He goes to that city. Him and, you know, two or three other men. That's all he had with him. So they fled that day. So then David arose and fled that day from Saul. And he went to Ashish, king of Gath. But the servants of Ashish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one? As they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousand and David his ten thousand. David took these words to heart and greatly feared Asius, the king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let the saliva run down his beard. Then Asius said to his servants, behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one? To act like the madman in my presence. Shall this one come into my house? So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Interesting story, isn't it? Isn't that an interesting story? So David takes the sword and he thinks, Where am I going to be able to go to be protected from Saul? Well, I'll just go to Saul's enemy, the Philistines. Well, David is also... Remember... David would go out and his dowry was to kill a hundred Philistines. And he goes out and he says, well, I'll just kill two hundred. I mean, these guys really didn't like him very much. And here he's coming to say, you know, can I kind of be on your side? And this is not the first time that David goes to, to work with the Philistines. David does it a second time as well in his life. <clears throat> and in both times, they're reluctant to receive him. And you can understand the reluctance. And so here he is wearing this sword, and it says, the servants of Asius look at him and they say, Aren't you the guy? I and mean, what's that sword you're wearing? That's a very familiar looking sword. Aren't you the guy that they sang about who said Saul has slain his thousand and David his ten thousand? That was the song that they were singing after David had slain Goliath. They remembered even the song that was sung. Now, this is a few years later, but still, you don't forget things like this easily because there was a great slaughter and they ran back to the cities, to the two inland cities on that day. And and, uh, so, here he was, standing there. Look at what David did. and And you say, how could somebody be so foolish? Let me give you an example of what people today do. The analogy of this. You come to the Lord... And things don't go all perfect. And you think, if I come to the Lord, things should go perfect. And so what do you do? You run back to the world, thinking the world is going to be able to be a nice, warm place. You know, you, you, you have these feelings, and, and, and often you do this. this. This happens often with international students. Let me, let me give you a view. International students can come to the U.S. and really miss their home country. This this often happens, really miss their home country, and they become critical of the U.S. In my country, we don't do this. In my country, we don't do that. And then, then after living in the U.S. for five years, they go back home. And, you know, the rose-colored glasses of what they imagined their own home as isn't quite as rosy. You see what I mean? And, And so, this happens with believers. Believers will come, and they'll come into the kingdom of God, and they say, you know, this is pretty tough. You know, you've you, you got to seek God and, and uh, you know, you expect if you seek God, everything's going to go well. And then you read all these verses about persecution and suffering in the kingdom of God. And so you start to step back into the world, thinking that the world is going to be some kind, show you some kindness. But the world is a very, very harsh taskmaster. Master. Women do this often. Women will get saved and, and, and they'll come into salvation and they'll walk with the Lord for a few years. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, they realize that, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of Christian guys out there that are very nice that are interested in them. And so then they meet somebody, some guy who's not a Christian. And they're really attracted to this guy. They say, well, you know, it's all right. I'll make him into a Christian. But he's an awfully nice guy, you know. Thinking that here is a haven for me. This person will take care of my life. This person will will watch over me. And it really won't be that bad. Let me tell you, young ladies, this happens a lot. Have you ever seen it in anyone else's life? You've seen it in other believing women's lives. You've seen it. Has it worked out for good in their lives? No. No. I don't know a case where it has worked out for good. If you know a case, let me know. It's going to be unusual. Usually, it results in real misery. Because what happens is, this guy of the world and this Christian girl end up sleeping together. And now what happens is that once, once this has happened, the woman's heart in particular is so bound to this guy that in the midst of abuse and things that she knows are totally wrong, she's unable to sever from him. Because once they've slept together, there's this bond, especially in the woman... That she feels she can't break from this guy. And she feels like, well, I've already given up myself to him. There's no breaking this. And she will allow herself to be abused more and more. And she puts up with all sorts of garbage until everything comes crashing down. And the guy says, I'm not interested in you anymore. This is a very common pattern. So why am I telling you this? To warn you. To warn you. Because you can come into the things of God and think that I'm going to go back to Ashish. I'm going to go back to Gath and it's all going to be nice. And Ashish is going to be really nice to me. He's not. The world is a wicked taskmaster. The kingdom of God is truly much nicer. This is one of the things that drew me to Christ. Is that Jesus said, they will see your love for one another. They'll know your disciples My disciples, by seeing your love one for another. When I started meeting Christians, I was coming out from a family that didn't know Christ, from the world that didn't know Christ. I knew very few Christians. The only Christians I knew were Catholics and they were from the Italian neighborhood. And as a Jewish kid living outside of New York City, my mother said, don't go to that neighborhood. And so the Jewish kids didn't go to that neighborhood. That's the only ones that I knew. So I went to college and I started meeting all these people who said that they were born again. And, you know, they were really nice people. Now, since then, I've met some that are born again that aren't so nice. But in general, they are really different people. So much so that when I go back into a world setting, into a setting that's surrounded by people of the world, I'm like, I am just blown away by how harsh it can be. Let me give you an example. Just recently, we were with Mrs. Harrison at a, at a, we went to a funeral. Remember that, Mrs. Harrison? The funeral we went to recently. So, my, my neighbor died. Nice man. You know, he was good to my kids, he was good to us, and he died. And, and, uh, so, we went to his funeral, and, it was amazing. You know, you go in there, I thought I was going into a nightclub. You know, there was, the piano was playing, but it wasn't a bunch of hymns. I mean, some guy was just, banging away at the piano and loud. And then there was an open bar and people were drinking. This guy drank himself to death. He died because his liver got destroyed from drinking. And here his son is drinking. And, you know, you got a grieving spouse, you got a grieving mother, and everybody's drinking. And, and, and the harshness of the people... And I, I walked up to the woman and she says, yeah, we, we wanted to have a, make this more of a celebration of life. Now, I've seen celebration of life at funerals. They are not like this one was. This was not a celebration of life like I knew it. This was a celebration on how he died. <laughs> Let's all follow his example. <clears throat> and I, it hit me. The world is really different than the community that I know in the body of Christ. Because the community that I know in the body of Christ ministers to people in their pain. Now, you may have you know, hymns going, you may have a worship service. It's very different than their quote-unquote celebrating life. The world is a very hard taskmaster. If you think it is hard to walk as a believer, you walk in the world and you'll get really beat up. David went into this situation and they say, wait a minute. I know you. And I recognize that sort. And David is all of a sudden gulp. And he's arrested by them because it says that he disguised his sanity before them. Then he acted insanely in their hands. The in their hands is the implication that they have arrested him. They have taken him. And we can get a glimpse of David from this. Again, remember the, the Psalms. David wrote a psalm. When he was in the midst of this. This is Psalm 56. So he's in the midst of, of this, this being arrested. And he writes a psalm. And look at what's going through David's mind now. <clears throat> psalm 56. Reading from verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Remember what I told you to do? What we saw in the book of Psalms, what would David do when he was in trouble? The first line, boom, what do you want? First thing, God, be gracious to me. Be gracious to me. God, help me. You know, you go into prayer and you pray for what you need. You be very specific. The first thing he says, God, help me. I'm in trouble again. God, help me. He says, for, for they, my, Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. There are many who fight proudly against me. Verse 3, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. This is powerful. Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever been in a situation where you were afraid? This happens to me. It really does. And I get so overwhelmed with some things. He says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. How much more explicit would you like the word of God to be? How much more simple could it get? When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Look what he does. He starts speaking the word of God. I am going to put my trust in God again and again. He says, I shall not be afraid. What do you mean? How can can you sit there and say, I shall not be afraid? I'm afraid. How can my saying, I shall not be afraid, change that? Well, it can. When we put our trust in God and we say, I shall not be afraid. This takes the word of God and boom, right into your life, it places it. I shall not be afraid. I shall not be afraid. In God, I will trust. This is what will make you spiritually strong. When you are in those moments, and I get in those moments. When you are in those moments, you can lift yourself out of those moments by doing this. You proclaim, when I am afraid, I shall put my trust in God. In God, whose word I praise. You read this book, and you praise this word, you will be influenced for good. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. You see what you do? What does the man of God do? This is how it's done. You want to know how to build yourself up in the word of God? This is how it's done. Listen to this. You get alone with God and you say, I shall not be afraid. And you take this word and you bring it right into your heart. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? What can this recital do to me? What can this exam do to me? You take this word and you place it in your heart. So few Christians know how to do this. What I'm sharing with you is a treasure and a secret. And the reason it's a secret from Christians is because they don't read the word of God. If you read this word, it's not a secret. But I'm telling you something that very few believers know how to do. Very few of them know how to strengthen themselves in the word of God. Look, look down in, in, uh, in verse 8. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God sees his every tear. God, you see my every tear. You have stored them in a bottle. Have you ever gotten alone? You've been so overwhelmed that you've started to weep. I have. On several occasions, I have. David recognizes God sees every one of my tears. I mean, he was in a real fix. God sees every one of your tears. He says you have put them in a bottle. You have written them in a book. You have a description of my tears in your book. He takes himself and he places himself spiritually and mentally in the presence of God. That's what he does. And then he says in verse 11, in in verse 10, In God whose word I praise. There he says it again. Just like he had said it uh, further above. He he talked about in verse verse 4. In God whose word I praise. In verse 10, in God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. Again and again. He says, I praise your word. In God, verse 11, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. Again, he takes it. I shall not be afraid. You learn how to do this and you will be spiritually very strong. People will look at you and they'll say, you're never down. I mean, things just never really get to you. People have said this to me. Things just never really get to you. And Shireen is like rolling her eyes. (laughs) But this is the perception out there. People come, how do you do all that you you have? You just seem to be always upbeat and going strong. Uh, Because this morning I was weeping like a baby. And I asked God to empower me and to strengthen me. That's how. That is how. This is a treasure. You take this up. You learn how to do this. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can man do? Do to me. Again, he proclaims this. This is the treasure of what David speaks to us. We learn it from the depths of his despair. He wasn't messing around here. This wasn't just, you know, a hard day in Sunday school for him. He was in the hands of the Philistines in their jail. And he was ready to be, you know, strung up. And that's when he wrote this. And it lifted him up. We'll talk more about this next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of the Word of God. I pray, Lord, for these young people, that you would cause them to pick up patterns in their lives that would build up their families. Lest they tear them down brick by brick. Lord, I pray that you would protect young women, particularly from slipping back into the world, thinking there is security there. That they would honor you and honor your word. And realize that the kingdom of God is much kinder and much gentler than what the world ever has to offer. And Lord, I thank you for the word of God that you can speak into our lives and strengthen us spiritually. Thank you, Lord, for this truth that David, in spite of all the wrong decisions and crazy decisions that this man made, He knew how to strengthen himself in God. Father, may we learn from this. May we learn to overcome our fears by speaking, I shall not be afraid. I trust in God to speak that into our own lives and to be strengthened in your word through this. To fear your word and to say, in God whose word I praise. Father, let these young people have a praise for your word. And Lord, I commit this to You. And I ask You to work in their lives in the name of Jesus. Amen.